But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous, so that land was filled with them. And then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labour. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labour in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labour, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shepra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered, Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ernie. It's a pretty, uh, pretty horrifying story, really, when you think about it. How many of you have uh, watched Call the Midwife? Yeah, quite a few Call the Midwife fans. So imagine the East End of London in the 1950s, sort of early 60s, and the midwives are being asked to kill every male child that is born and let all the girl children live. And that's, um, that's basically what was going on in this story. And it's very easy, I think, with, um, with the Bible to sort of just, you know, read a chapter like that and yeah, some strange names in it and it's a foreign country and it's a long time ago and you go sort of, yeah, okay, right, well, that's sort of, that's a story. You don't really engage with it. Um, and what I'd like us to do this morning is to see if we can engage with it a little bit more, a little bit more deeply. And 
What, what is there that we can learn from these two midwives all those years ago in a strange land, in a very different culture? Is there anything that's actually relevant to Hand Cross and Slaffham and Peace Pottage and Staplefield and West Sussex in a leafy part of... Uh, The message, it seems to me, that was coming across is, is something along the lines of sort of not doing what you're told. So it's good that the youngsters are not sort of in church today because uh, that's always a bit of a challenge. I appreciate that uh, there is at least one youngster, but um, hopefully she's a little too young to hear the message about disobedience, so that'll be okay. Otherwise, Sunday lunch could be, uh, could be adventurous for, uh, for Gina and Mike. But um, let's have a look at uh, what was actually going on in this chapter. So Paul, putting up the first slide. Um, This is a tale of genocide. The Old Testament is full of genocide. And uh, Sue and I were talking about this over the the uh, the last few days. And of course, unfortunately, the Jews, the Israelite nation, uh, is often the perpetrator of that genocide. So uh, we shouldn't sort of gloss over the fact uh, that genocide is a difficult issue in the Old Testament. But in this particular situation, the Jews are the victims of an attempt at genocide. And you may remember the backstory to this. Uh, Jacob um, and then Joseph. And Joseph had gone, the, the famous Technicolor Dreamcoat and the whole musical. That was Joseph going, being captured, taken into Egypt, and then all his brothers coming along, uh, very sorry for having got him there, and saying, there's actually a famine in our country, can we come and live with you? Which was a bit cheeky, really, given the fact they'd sold him into slavery. But because he was a good guy and he had a lovely Technicolor coat, he said, yes, absolutely, and they all burst into song and lived happily ever after. Until... They stopped living happily ever after because Joseph died and that whole generation died out. And the pharaoh who had sort of welcomed Joseph into his civil service and the family into sort of Joseph's household, that pharaoh died. And this is some time later. It's not entirely clear how much later, but probably several generations, sort of 100 years or so. And the Israelites have carried on breeding Israelites. And the Egyptians have carried on breeding Egyptians. And there's probably been a certain amount of sort of intermingling, and the Israelites are sort of fairly embedded into Egyptian culture, but they are still sort of discernibly different. They are identifiably different in some way. Maybe they live in particular areas. Maybe they wear slightly different clothes to the Egyptians. They probably speak a a different language when they're at home. Maybe they eat different food. They probably do because they would be applying the Jewish kosher laws and the Egyptians wouldn't. So you can identify a Jew and you can identify an Egyptian, even if they're in the same village and they've got allotments alongside one another. And then along comes Pharaoh. And Pharaoh fears the enemies within. He thinks that the the Israelite nation might actually ally itself with another force whoever it might be, the Phoenicians or the Assyrians, the the Midianites or the Canaanites or whoever it was that the Egyptian pharaoh was worrying about outside Egypt, he's got this foreign population embedded in his land, non-Egyptians, not British, if you want to put it into our context, not like us. And so he's worried. Now, we don't know whether he's genuinely worried or whether actually he's whipping up fear as a way of embedding his power base in Egypt. That's quite common. It's quite common to see people in different parts of the world saying, let's make our country great again. They're different. They shouldn't be here. 
Let's get rid of them. You can see that happening in different places around the world. It certainly happened throughout the history of Europe in the last 100 years. So we're not quite sure why Pharaoh is doing this, but the outcome is pretty obvious. He basically wants to eliminate the Israelite nation from within Egypt, but he wants to do it subtly. And I think that's an interesting point to think about for a second in terms of translating this into sort of modern situation. Why does he want to do it subtly? Well, because probably there were lots of Egyptians who quite liked their Israelite neighbours. There were probably quite a lot of Israelites who were, again, fairly senior in different sort of positions or were productive farmers or good merchants. They were productive members of society. They weren't obviously bad people, a lot of them, as far as the local Egyptians were concerned. So Pharaoh just stood up and said, they're all bad, kill them. It's quite likely a lot of Egyptians would have gone, well, that doesn't sound very right. I know Moses who lives next door to me. I know Abraham who lives down the road. They're they're good people. I meet Ruth at the supermarket. She's a nice woman. Ishmael looks after my allotment when I'm on holiday. So Pharaoh has to take a subtle path, and he does what all genocidal rulers do and have done throughout history. He starts by differentiating between the us and the them. He starts by saying, they're not quite as good as us. Now, we don't get all of that in this Old Testament tale, but that's the way that rulers throughout history have always done it. That's the way that people right now around the world are differentiating between the the people who are like us and the people who are not. He puts them to socially useful work, so he sets up a work program. Now, we know that some of these Israelites are not very productive members of Egyptian society. They tend to sponge off the welfare system. They tend to eat quite a lot of our grain. Uh, They use quite a lot of our water resources, and quite a few of them spend far too much time looking after their own herds and not actually helping build a modern Egypt. So we're going to recruit them into Egyptian work parties where they can do socially useful things like building Ramesses, a marvellous grain store which is for the benefit of everybody. We'll call it Pharaoh's grain store. You can all come and get grain from it. It'll be built by these Israelites. They'll do productive work. They'll no longer be sponging off society. Now, of course, he's making them work in such a way that actually it's having a deleterious effect on their health. So he has a hidden agenda, but to people who are either not very observant or to people who don't want to be too observant amongst the Egyptians, this looks like a fairly sensible thing to do. We'll take all those unemployed sponges and we'll make them do something useful. And we'll make them work hard because hard work is good. And then provided you didn't go to Ramesses and see what was going on, you just read your copy of the Daily Egyptian, it would be saying, smiling Israelites, working hard under their friendly Egyptian overseers. And that would be okay. And then you could turn to the sports news. If you went to Ramesses, you'd see the slave labour that was being used there. But this is the subtle approach that he uses. Unfortunately, it doesn't work. Or not work fast enough. So he comes up with 
the next stage, which is having sort of classified the Israelites as the enemy within, people who need to be in work parties, people who need to be sort of treated differently, then he talks to the midwives and he starts to try and establish a program of more direct genocide. Let's have a look at the, the next stage of his plot. Now, Pua and Shifra, we, um, it, it's strange, you know, they're one of the reasons Carl's has sort of picked these different um, people throughout the Bible is they're, they're slightly sort of random. They're rather um, unusual. We don't know very much about them. They're names that sort of pop up and then disappear. We don't even know if they were Israelite or Egyptian. There's a little bit of a debate about the, the translation uh, of the Aramaic as to whether they were Hebrew midwives or midwives to the Hebrews. And if they were midwives to the Hebrews, then they could have been Egyptian midwives to the Hebrews or they could have been Hebrew midwives to the Hebrews. Um, the names themselves are Semitic, the names are Jewish. So it's, it's probably sort of more likely uh, that they were Israeli rather than, uh, rather than Hebrew, but we just don't know. They probably weren't the only midwives because the population of the, the Israelite population at this stage was, was you know, reasonably large. Again, we don't know the sort of total numbers, um, but it was probably sort of thousands rather than hundreds, so they would have needed more than two midwives, likely. So some people think that they were chosen or talked about because they were the sort of the senior midwives. They were in charge of the, the guild of midwives or however it worked at that particular time. But for whatever reason, Pharaoh has picked them out and he wants them to organise the genocide for him. And again, he doesn't want it to be too obvious to the Egyptians. He doesn't want the Egyptians seeing what's going on. So this will be, at the moment of birth, the midwives are going to cause an accident, if you like. They could do it very subtly. The woman is concentrated on giving birth. The father is probably not there. It might just be her and the, and the, the midwife and the woman. It would actually be quite easy to kill a male child at that point. And nobody would really know. So again, it's part of this subtle process. So they're faced with a terrible choice. Now, for the purposes of, of thinking about this in a way that's relevant to us, I think it's actually quite interesting to think about them as if they were Egyptian. And put yourselves in their place as if they were Egyptian. Or imagine that this is you as a somebody resident in the UK being asked to do this by a higher authority in the UK, the government, or your boss, or the head of your household, or however you want to frame it in your mind. Because if they fear God and do what is godly and right and say no to Pharaoh, they will be killed. I don't think there's any doubt about that. If they say yes to Pharaoh, then obviously they're going to be doing something they know is horribly wrong. It will be against what God wants them to do. It will be against their midwifery sort of practice. The idea that as a midwife, you should deliberately kill a baby as it's born is, is horrifying. So they've got to find a way of dealing with this. Now, we face choices like theirs. They're not nearly as serious for most of us. But we potentially are asked to do things that don't sit well 
with our faith in God. So what did they do? Well, again, we don't know very much about them. And, and if you, again, you think about your own situation, it's possible that they'd been as fantastically sort of pure, religiously observant Jews, even if they were Egyptians, maybe they've sort of adopted the Jewish faith, and, uh, and, and they'd just been sort of, you know, brilliant midwives and brilliant sort of religious Israelites. And this is the first time they're really confronted with something horrible. So it might be a real shock. But it might be that they are uh, Egyptians who have faith in this Israel. Jews, because they sort of retained their Egyptian practice, they're not eating Jewish food or living in a Jewish way, but they've just accepted there is one God, and it's the Jewish God. It's not, it's not Pharaoh or the sun or anything like that. So maybe they've sort of accepted this, this foreign faith, but the rest of their life is sort of Egyptian. And they're just going about their daily lives, being good midwives to Egyptians and to, to Israelites. And actually, when they look at it, there's probably quite a lot of compromise going on in terms of how they live their lives in relation to what God would want them to do. Maybe there are times when there's an Egyptian religious festival and they go along to that. They sort of, you know, do the Egyptian religious bit. And then at another time, they're worshipping God. We don't know. We don't know. So we don't really know how much of a sort of, oh my goodness moment this was for them. And that's something that we all face, isn't it? Because a lot of these things, they happen incrementally. Our faith is not challenged in a big way. It's very unlikely for any of us that we're going to be asked to murder somebody. And if we were, we'd probably think that's possibly not biblical. So we might spot that as a crossing the line moment. But there are other situations. There might be something at work where somebody says to you, yeah, look, you know, this has happened, but we don't need to report it to, uh, to, to, the, to the boss, to the leadership, to the senior management. We can, we can just sort of leave it there. Or you bump somebody's car in the car park. Nobody sees. Just sort of drive away. You know, what's the point of leaving a note? I mean, it's just complicating things, isn't it? And ruins your insurance premium. There's all sorts of situations where there are little things that then maybe become bigger things. Now, their faith was strong enough for them to identify that a line was about to be crossed. I don't think it's too difficult to see that a line was about to be crossed. But the interesting thing is they chose not to confront Pharaoh. Now, again, one has to be a little bit careful about using the Bible as like a menu for how you live your life. I think there are situations where if somebody suggests something to you that is wrong, that is against the way that God wants you to be, you should confront them. And you should confront the situation and you should stand up, be counted and say no. And only you will be able to identify those situations and when that is the right way to behave. But for Shifra and Pua, they decided that it was not right. They did not, effectively they were not prepared to die on the floor of the palace by saying to Pharaoh, no, I'm sorry, that's wrong. Find me another midwife. They decided to take a more subtle approach. Now, they came up with a plausible excuse. And it's interesting, isn't it? Sort of, if you read the context, here is an, a foreign sort of nation, as far as Pharaoh saw it, who are so healthy and vigorous that even slave labor isn't having a strong impact on the population. They just keep on breeding and succeeding. And oh my goodness, what can we do to kill them? 
So when the midwives come back and say, I'm sorry, Your Honour, but they're so vigorous and so strong, they just give birth before we get there, to Pharaoh, that's probably quite plausible because he's now got in his mind this idea of the, the Israelite nation as sort of, you know, somehow super strong and super vigorous and really healthy. So it's actually quite a plausible excuse. It's quite clever from a sort of medical midwifery perspective. So they're being quite subtle about their resistance to Pharaoh. They're, they're absolutely not saying, Pharaoh, this is wrong, you should not be doing it. So it's an interesting form of disobedience. And like I say, the Bible is not like a, like a one, two, three recipe book that if you do these things, that's God's way. It's, it's a series of stories about people who have faced life and had to live out their faith in the way that they thought was best. And this is what Shifra and Pua did. The other thing which I think is very interesting is you often hear the excuse from people, well, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I always massage my expenses at work because everybody does. You know, and if, if I didn't do that, then somebody else would. If I didn't park in that disabled space, I bet somebody else would. I always see other people doing that. If I didn't speed, then other people would. You know, the idea that my obeying the rules doesn't make a difference. My saying to Pharaoh, I'm not going to do this, doesn't make a difference. So I won't be disobedient. I won't follow God in this instance because somebody else will come and take my place. In the most extreme example, they could have decided that they would kill the male Israelite children because if they didn't, somebody else would. And maybe they could justify it to themselves by saying, well, at least I'd do it nicely. The babies won't suffer. We can all come up with these ways of justifying doing things that are not what God wants us to do. And the somebody else will do it if I don't is a very common reason. One of the things that horrifies me about sort of some of the history of Europe is you know, if you look in, in Germany and other countries around, there were civil servants, people, people like me, administrators, accountants, people doing admin in offices, organising train shipments of people to concentration camps to make sure that they maximised the transport efficiency. So I could have been one of those civil servants doing a good job because I wasn't sort of allowing myself to really think. And I was thinking, what's the point of resisting? What's the point of saying to my boss, I'm not prepared to organise these train shipments knowing I would be fired, knowing my family would then be discriminated against by the Nazi regime, knowing possibly I would be imprisoned. What's the point of all that suffering on my family when there's a civil servant down the hall who would just take over the job. So I might as well do it. Protect my family. Look after myself. Their disobedience didn't change the outcome. It didn't stop anything. They didn't make it better by what they did. So that's not what we're being told the story in the Bible about. It's not that every time you resist you will make the world a better place. Unfortunately, that's not true. Pharaoh found a different way to commit genocide. The interesting thing, of course, here, just going back to the subtlety, he stopped being subtle. 
He'd now got things to the point where he felt confident to just say to the Egyptian population generally, if you see a baby Israelite, chuck it in the river. Like happened in Rwanda, for example, where the rivers were running red uh, with the, the bodies and the blood of, of communities who'd been killed and thrown in the river. So this is not sort of ancient history, as it were. You get things like this happening now. So that was the point where Pharaoh decided, right, okay, you know, stuff all this subtle stuff. Let's just have a proper sort of, you know, we'll just kill people. But he had to work his way up to it. Now, what does all this mean for us? <laughs> There's not too much genocide going around in West Sussex. Thank God. How does it work for us? How do we, uh, how do we apply this? Well, as I said earlier, we do face difficult choices. They're often a lot more subtle. How do we, how do we behave towards people at the school gates? Maybe there's a, a particular person in the sort of the, the school gates pick-up situation who is rather difficult, not liked by the other people around, not very likable, a bit different. What's our choice there? Do we sort of go along with the crowd and... You know, not talk to them, exclude them, say things about them that we're perhaps not entirely proud of, but how do we behave at work? What do we write? What do we say? What expenses do we claim? What do we do when our boss says to us, you know, here's a, here's a thing, I want you to report this to head office because that'll make sure we all get our bonuses. And you know that it's just not quite true. We all face choices every day about how we live our lives, how we interact with other people. We will face choices over the next few weeks and months as to what we want our politicians to do, how we want them to behave, how we want them to talk about other people in this country or in other countries. Now, you will all have your own beliefs about sort of how society should run, about how politics should work, about what's the right way to structure a welfare system or a prison system or a hospital system. And the Bible doesn't have an answer for you or for me. So your political views might be different to mine. My views on how other things should work might be different to yours. That doesn't make either one of us less Christian. What the Bible is saying, though, is that we have to engage our brains. We have to engage with God as we think about these things. So it's not Christianity on a Sunday and politics on a Monday to a Saturday. Christianity on a Sunday and going to work the rest of the week. God wants us to be <coughs> consistent. He wants us to be engaged with him 24-7. So what are some things that might help? Well, if we can think like Jesus, that's got to be a good starting point, hasn't it, really? I'm not saying this is necessarily easy. But if you can, you know, it's the sort of what would Jesus do is the, is the flippant way of encapsulating it. But actually that's quite a powerful little sort of uh, framework to have in your mind. The way it's described in Romans... Paul writes, uh, and this is the contemporary English version, so it's a slightly more modern translation, let God change the way you think. Let God change the way you think. Then, 
you will know how to do everything that is good and pleasing to him. That's an interesting idea. If we let God engage with our brains and change the way that we think, then it becomes easier to identify what God would regard as good and pleasing. If we act like Jesus, we're much less likely to be falling into the trap of doing something that is actually against God's will. Now, we've talked about this a lot over the last few weeks and months, but love your neighbour as yourself is clearly the the way that Jesus summarised the whole of the Old Testament law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul and your body and love your neighbour as yourself. These are the two laws on which hangs all the law and the prophets, Jesus said. Loving your neighbour as yourself, that's actually really difficult. But that's where Jesus says we should be acting. And then this bit from Matthew, I thought, was really interesting. Again, Jesus talking to his disciples as he's sending them out into the, into the, sort of the countryside and the cities and towns to, to preach and uh, engage with the population. He's effectively saying to them, be wise. Be thoughtful. Don't be cynical. So don't always assume the worst. Be discerning. Be wise. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. That's not a great place to be. And you may sometimes feel that's your situation. You may sometimes feel, yeah, if I I say something, if I contradict that remark, if I say to the person I'm talking to, yeah, I I don't like those sorts of jokes, so, you know, let's just move on. I wish you wouldn't refer to people like that. I had a, an interesting moment of realisation myself. This horrible case at the moment with a policeman who was killed um, by being dragged under a, a car or a van. And, you know, you hear the story and it, the policeman's been killed and you think, oh, gosh, that's awful. And then the story develops. And then there was a comment on the radio and the police are investigating people at a local caravan park. And I thought, oh, yeah, well, of course. Ah, oh, yeah, well, of course. Gypsies, you know. Huh. And I was horrified at myself. But of course, the reason I think that is not utterly, utterly irrational. It's just a random thought. It's because I've sort of seen and heard other stories that have allowed me to build up a picture in my mind of that group of people are not like me. They don't behave well. They don't do nice things. So when I hear they've done another nasty thing, and of course I don't actually know that they have, but when I hear a story that suggests they might, I think, yeah, they probably did. And that's the path down which the local authority could say, let's just close all those campsites. We'll just move them all out of the south of England. We'll send them all north. And I might think, yeah, that's not very nice, but it's probably a good idea. Because I've decided that they're not like me. That was a shock, because I don't like to think of myself as a prejudiced, unpleasant person. But to that extent, I am. Was I loving my neighbour as myself? Is a person in a caravan park my neighbour? Yeah, absolutely. Do I need to let God change the way I think? Yes, I do. I need to be honest with God and say, yes, God, I have thought about this particular group of people in this way. 
hide that from God. I can't pretend that's not how I'm thinking. I have to engage with God and say, Lord, help me change the way I think. But that doesn't mean that every time I meet anybody, I go, I'm going to love you and therefore you must be lovely. It's a difficult balance, isn't it? It's a difficult balance. How do we be shrewd as snakes, which is not a very nice image, while being innocent as doves? And I think Jesus is saying, this is hard. But the more you are engaged with God, the closer your bond with God, the more you will be empowered to be like Jesus. Jesus knew what people were like. He knew. He knew the Pharisees were like empty graves. But he still went to dinner with them. So he knew what people were like, but he still loved them because he also knew that they could become like him. They could change. And that's, I think, what I take from learning about Shifra and Pua. They were faced with a horrible choice. They recognised what God wanted them to do because they were close enough to him to still have that integrity and that love for their neighbours. And that's our calling, is to be close enough to God that we recognise when we are being asked to do things that are not in his will and we can push back. Let's pray. Father God, as we think of all the things that are going on around us, we think of our world and our country and our neighbourhood. Lord, we recognise that we are faced with difficult choices as individuals and as families, as a church. We pray, Father, that you will draw each of us close to you. Help us to have minds like yours, hearts like yours, and hands and feet like yours. In Jesus' name, amen.